Happy New Year, everyone, and welcome back to the Doss and D Show for 2023. We hope you've all had a safe and happy Christmas and New Year's period and are ready for a huge year ahead. Hopefully you enjoyed our last episode, which included some of the best moments of 2022, and this year we're going bigger and better again. Our first episode for the year starts off with a bang, welcoming a special family connection. Today, we welcome my uncle, the great John Satterley, to the Doss and D Show. There's two main parts to this episode. The first, John is the CEO and co-founder of Fortress, a huge multi-level complex in the heart of Melbourne, home to hundreds of playable devices, games, a tavern, and even an esports arena that hosts live events. John gives us an incredible behind-the-scenes look into the vision of Fortress and how it came to be, including raising capital, getting through COVID after it struck a week after opening, and even an insight into his own personal journey through the world of gaming. The second part of this episode is a deep and intimate look into John's passion and previous career, music. More specifically, metal. For over 16 years, John worked at Roadrunner Records and was managing director in Australasia for 12 of them, later relocating to New York City in a role of senior VP of new media and global business development. John shared with us some of the secrets of the industry, including what record deals look like, relationships and touring with some of the biggest bands in the world, such as Slipknot and Nickelback, and the rise of digital and the challenges faced with illegal streaming and IP theft. John also sprinkles some amazing stories throughout this episode and we know you're going to love this one. Now remember to click that subscribe button and follow our socials in the show notes. But for now, let's get into this huge episode. Here is our interview with the wonderful John Satterley. Radio Dos, we've been on the road for a week and we land back in Melbourne. Can you explain where we are currently? Well, we're big, fa- we're big FIFA people, so yeah. love, the, love the gaming side when it comes to sport. And we're probably talking to a person that's probably changed the game of, of gaming, especially here in Australia and Melbourne in particular right now, with in terms of facility and, and a place for people to come together and, and enjoy gaming together. Someone that's close to you, so I'll let you introduce it him. It is my uncle, John Satterley. Welcome to the Doss and D Show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's oh. a lot of fun, hopefully. Oh, we're wrapped. We can't wait. When we're walking in, we we're just amazed by just, there was a group of schoolboys, maybe? How many were yeah, there? Five, six of them? And they yeah. just couldn't wait to get in here. And mm. they knew everything about it. It's amazing what you've created. So in your words, can you explain what you've created here? Mm. I'll try. <laughs> in a few words. One way we describe what we built here, initially we used to say we built a cathedral for games or a cathedral for gamers because we wanted to, in just a simple sentence, try to convey the, the shock and awe of how big and how sort of overwhelming sometimes the size and the scale of Fortress Melbourne is. A bit like if you walked into a cathedral and if games was your religion. It's a, it's a really big venue that's dedicated to games of all kinds, whether it be PC gaming, classic sort of land lounge, sit and play on a, you know, a couple of hours on a PC. Yeah. But that's just a tiny fraction. It's also a, a home for games of board game variety, role-playing games like Dungeons & Dragons, tabletop games, other sorts of tabletop games, console games, but basically any kind of game that people enjoy, we have created a home for that. And it's across well, approximately 2,700 square metres, wow. including an esports arena. Well, we like to think of it like a competitive gaming arena so that it doesn't, I guess, esports can sometimes preclude certain people. It seems like it's more, esports is very much a peak of the triangle sort of um, concept and we love that, but we also like the idea that anyone can play competitive video games and so we built an arena for that. Was there anything of its kind before and did you see a gap in the market and are you someone who loves games yourself and you wanted to attack that gap? 
Yeah. So there wasn't anything like Fortress in the market, but there were obviously elements of what Fortress has in the market. So what we kind of did was take bits and pieces of what was there. So I forgot to mention, we've also got a classic arcade, mm. just like you'd find at a Time Zone or Be Lucky and Sons. So you've got all of that. Time Zone and Be Lucky have been around for a while and then you've got you know, role-playing games have been around forever and there's nothing new about a LAN lounge or a PC LAN centre. So we looked at all those things and said, what would it look like if you brought it all under one roof and upscaled it? Mm. That was the other big insight for us as a business. We said, it's not just about putting it cheaply all together. We wanted to make it look, feel, look and feel like a luxury experience. And that was one of the key business model insights was that many of the places that were doing sorts of things in the area were doing it not a criticism, they were just doing it the way they wanted to do it and often it was done in a more um, sort of low-rent fashion. Yeah. And you know, it might just have been a, a warehouse somewhere in the suburbs doing something and that's great but we said we wanted to sort of turn all of that on its head and make the whole experience of going to a venue to play games feel like a real luxury concierge-like experience. Yeah. Well, 100%. And Doss, when we walked in, he mentioned it feels like a modern-day arcade. That's what it felt right. like. It was just – you've got the bar here, which is cool, so it attracts people of all ages. So it's not just kids sitting down playing games. Like when we walked in, there's a table there and there's a group of, I don't know, 6 to 10, mm. and they look to be, you know, in their probably 30s or 40s. Well, spot yeah. on. In fact, that that's the other major key insight that we knew anyway, but it was worth uh, – by being a, a licensed 24-hour license here – the major sort of piece to our puzzle was this ain't for kids yeah it's popular for kids of course and we do get lots of kids but this is an over 18 venue if you're under 18 you have to be accompanied by a your guardian or you know someone over 18 mm. a responsible adult and we don't target kids I mean, we like having kids but our predominant audience is usually people in their 20s probably median age is about 26 27 and you know, we have scores of people coming in in their 30s and 40s and 50s, or older, yeah. you know, so it's no, it's certainly an adult-oriented venue. So w what was this prior to Fortress, what, the building? Oh, talking it was about? Um, Top Shop, Top Man. Okay. And upstairs and down here in this basement, it was Valley Girl. Wow. So, yeah, <laughs> so it was kind of a fast fashion place and we, well, you know, that whatever's gone on in that sector. Yeah. You know, Valley Girl, I think, opened up around the corner on Burke Street now and it's a little uh, probably suitably sized mm. venue. You can't imagine Valley Girl no. commanding the amount of space here in this basement, but it did. And Topshop obviously had a flagship here and then it didn't turn out so well. So maybe it's a sign of the times that retail is seeing that games and experiences is more valuable, we'd like to think, than, say, traditional retail of clothing and yeah. menswear and womenswear or whatever it might be. So... That's that's where I think that's where we've got to. I know this is probably going to be a longish kind of answer, but when it comes to an idea like this and bringing it to fruition, how many years in the making and what's the process and finding investors and, and making it happen? So it depends on when you sort of pinpoint when the idea was germinated. Yep. And your earlier question about whether I am personally a gamer, I guess, yes. So since I was a kid, even as a teenager or... I mean, I was obsessed even at the age of eight or nine or ten in the sort of early 80s when Gallagher, Galaxian and those early 80s games came out. I'd be just living in the milk bar of the fish and chip shop. Yeah. Just every cent that I had would go on playing video games. And then in the 80s and early 90s, you know, I would spend a third, two-thirds of my entire salary playing video games. And the idea 
struck me, I guess, that Gen X folks like me who grew up in the 80s, teenagers in the 80s, the only way you could play video games in the 80s, really good video games, was to go out of the home and play games. And then what happened with, say, the, the next generation millennials and then when Nintendo and all that really became big in the 90s and 2000s, it flipped and you didn't have to go outside anymore to play games. You played at home mm. and you played online because when I was a kid there was no internet so you didn't play online. Whereas now, you know, the modern gamer, the idea is you're at home playing online games from your bedroom, your, your lounge room, whatever. The, the insight stuck with me that there was always something magical and special about going to the arcade. Because when I went to arcades as a teenager, you know, heart rate went up, just <laughs> excitement, just bubbling, just if you were good at a certain game. And happily, you know, I was pretty good at some games. I got pl after playing a lot of money in them. And you would have, you know, people, it was almost like the proto-influencer. You know, you're there playing in an arcade in the city and by the time you've got to like level 27 or 38 or whatever, there's seven or eight people watching you, cheering you, right? The, so, the pinball wizard. Yeah, it was like that. It kind of <laughs> was like that. And so you had even then a culture of sort of spectator sport of people who are really good admiring – sorry, people admiring people who are really good at video games. And I used to see it all the time and I used to watch people play live in an arcade. And so I love the idea that getting out of the home and playing games was a social thing a, and, a, and a real vibey thing. And it struck me that, you know, that had gone out of games culture, at least as far as I could tell. You know, like we said earlier, it still existed in places, but even if you went to a land centre, the idea would be, you know, your headphones on, you might be playing solo with someone else in the, around the world somewhere else, not necessarily in a land cafe, usually not. You could go with your mates and have a land party, but often mm. it would just be, you know, you're in there solo or two other people and you're just playing online games. You just, you just like the computers in a land centre. Whereas what we wanted to do here at Fortress, the idea was how can we recreate that arcade spirit of the 80s that we grew up with? Because my co-founder, Adrian Giles, is a similar age to me. We just met him actually by accident. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. there you go. So, you know, we, we both grew up like that. He was obsessed with video games and arcades too in the 80s and early 90s and that sort of thing. So... We wanted to bring that spirit of the arcade back and knew that there was – just had this sort of hunch that this would be something that it's not exclusive to our generation. It's something that people have always wanted to do. They, people want to go out and have a community and have a place to go, have some beers and food and play games mm. and do this thing. It's not special just generationally. It's intergenerational. Yeah. And so that idea, as well as the other thing was – and we can talk about it later – but. You know, I used to be in the music industry. Most of my career was there. And one day I was in Korea in 2004 on tour with the band Slipknot. And I was driving from the airport to the, uh, to the hotel or whatever. And driving in through those suburbs of Seoul, I remember seeing in 2004, looking out of the taxi window or whatever, and seeing an entire football stadium type joint, chock-a-block, full of people, outdoors it was summer sort of warm watching starcraft wow. like a, a live uh, like 15,000 people at, in an outdoor stadium watching starcraft which was a massive game then right so probably still is i don't know but it was a huge game in the early 2000s certainly in korea it was monstrous so i was just you know blown away like oh my god like what the hell is this live video games you know esports and i that was my first sort of intuition that there was something going on also in culture around esports years ago come fast forward i was working at village roadshow in the sort of 2016 17 and at that point 
esports around 2017 seemed to sort of capture the zeitgeist, right? Everybody mm. was talking about esports, and you probably know because you guys do a lot with footy and, and, and folks in the footy world that, yeah. you know, the Essendon bought a team and the Crows bought a team, and it was seen to be like esports was, you know, second coming of Christ for these places, right? <laughs> yeah. So let's go esports. And yeah. I mean, I, I obviously clocked that and realized there's, there's something going on with esports. And because I was commissioned at Village Roadshow, one of the things I was asked to do there was to sort of come up with new business models and strategies. And my title as chief digital officer was to sort of provoke thinking around new endeavors. Because I love games, I figured, well, maybe there's something, you know, esports, spirit, this arcade idea, looking around and thinking, maybe that's, you know, the next place where a company like Village should play because they were in the business with theme parks and cinemas to, you know, this is something that felt like an obvious step. I got a blue a green light to explore that idea and work on a model and everything. And then in the end, for a whole bunch of reasons, it didn't get through the board and got rejected as, a, as an idea. So and it was no hard feelings. In fact, they were really generous because I resigned. I mean, I sort of put, put it down and said, this is what I think is the future of entertainment. And then when they didn't want to do it, I said, well, I can't not do this because I've yeah. said it's the future. So they, you know, to, to my surprise and delight said, look, we didn't do it. So you can have those plans. And I, I, I guess I had orchestrated those plans, but technically speaking, you know, as I was a company employee, they own them and they said, yeah, yeah you, can, you can move forward with them and assign them to you. So there I was without a job and just a good, what I thought was a marvelous idea. And then it, by some contacts that I had, I struck a, a partnership or a friendship with Adrian. I met him and within basically, well, I didn't, wasn't friends with him I met him but within the three hours of meeting the guy we shook and set up and said let's set up a company to do this wow awesome now it's funny because he you say well what why and in my old office where I was still based there were some things in my office that Adrian as I mentioned has similar sort of um, tastes to me and similar background or generationally and he walked in and he said well I knew we'd do a deal straight away because as soon as I walked into your office, I saw you had a Conan the Barbarian poster on the wall. <laughs> you had a big Lebowski poster on the wall. You had your Winston Churchill portrait on another side of your wall and you had your bike hanging up that you rode to work in on the, behind you. So mm. he said, all right, well, this is a guy I could do Three business ticks. with. Yeah. So it's a sign that, you know, sometimes it's not about what's said, it's about what, what sort of vibe you, you're sort of yeah. emanating. And so we, yeah, we said, basically shook on it. And lucky for me because having worked in music and entertainment, but working for companies, I'd never actually had to go out into the wild and raise money from scratch for an idea that I'd had. I'd always worked for companies where they were providing the, the capital to, yeah. to do something. But Adrian, his background was through bootstrapping and entrepreneurial sort of capital raising and what have you. Gotcha. So it was a nice mix of skills because um, my background with entertainment, his with hospitality and entrepreneurship and capital raising in particular, but other things, you know, it's just, just a very high level skill yeah. set meant that we had a really nice complementary package of skills. And so he had no fear about raising, like going out and raising money. And I had all the fear in the world because I'd never done it. I just thought, who, who gives you money to set up? I thought banks and then they laugh at you. Banks at the shithouse, you know, lending you money. Yeah. They don't want to know really, right? So you've got to go to other sources to get money for a good idea. It's not easy either. So... That then led to um, – that was around April or so of 2018. So the majority of people listening, like you're talking to the converted, they understand. But for that generation perhaps or people that don't understand how big and how much opportunity there is in this market. So, for instance, if you listen to 
investing podcast, like the talk is with the ETFs, investing gaming, like mm. invest in this industry. It's going to be huge. So mm. when you're raising capital, how do you actually sit people down and explain like this is where it's going? And like I'd love you to even talk about VR and when you see that going. When it comes to raising money, it's extremely difficult even in the best of times and we're not in the best of times now but we were maybe a few years ago when the you know obviously everything was frothy and buoyant a couple mm. of years ago it was a lot easier you can look at pitch decks and what have you that people who have got an idea surface and solicitate to get money and now I know what I know I know that even ones that I might have looked at or done in the past are a joke mm. because if you haven't actually really to the minute detail figured out how you're going to actually make money as a business and I'm saying minute detail not a series of loose hockey stick graphs oh you know year one and we'll just plot 30% increases in revenue and, and, and overhead and off we go we look at our net profit if you're not like putting together exhaustive models eye stinging models with yeah. every single thing calibrated like Cleaning costs, security costs, pest control, uh, utilities, everything for hospitality. But it, sure. no matter what it is, the people who are going to give you serious money, probably even people who are going to give you unserious money, if they're serious investors, they are going to want to see right down to that line. And if you think that you can raise money with just a you know a fifteen-page sizzle deck, then you you know really my experience is that you'll be sorely mistaken by that because it's just not. Maybe your mates will give you some, yeah. But if you go out into capital markets or you know high net worth families and places that you often would go to if you're not going to banks, they're going to want like real serious rigor around your business model, and you're going to need to be able to justify things like your unique value proposition and understand business strategy so that you don't just you know put forward something that is easily replicable or doesn't have a hope in hell once, gotcha. you know, all the, all the sort of fundamentals of business strategy too. If you don't know that, now luckily I, that's where I had some strength, perhaps not as strong in like minutia of financial modelling, but definitely my skill sets were more in business strategy. Yeah. So I had a lot to say about that. And we were able to convince people through quite a lot of due diligence that we were a good bet to, to invest. Plus, I guess... It's fortunate, but it's unfortunate for perhaps listeners who are younger or haven't got the runs on the board. There is a certain level of gravitas that you have just from being in the business, being yeah. in business for longer, right? So they're going to look at, funnily enough, the cliche might be the, the 26-year-old Silicon Valley kid raising a billion bucks, but mm. for every one person who does that, there's a billion people that tried it and didn't get it. Yeah, And yet you might find that the longer you've just got a, you know, a, a bit longer resume – people who are going to give you a million bucks are going to probably want to interrogate who you are as a person, what your business skills look like, but also your integrity and also your reputation and all of these things that really matter when you're looking to raise money. And I know that that was something that I had to demonstrate, that I had runs on the board and I had a, and Adrian certainly had you know, far further along that journey because he'd been in those markets and had to make those arguments before and had a lot of success having returned you know good investments back to people who put money into into his ventures so all of that was the chemistry that worked on the question about vr it's not something that i personally have got a lot of stake in or believe in as any sort of major thing oh really no nah. well i love that there's a few i mean i think vr is okay and i've owned i had oculus rift i got oculus quest 2 but i know that i look at the oculus quest 2 sitting on my desk 
and I'll use it once a month every three months. And every time I use it, I know I'm almost doing it like a chore. And why is that? Is because headsets are shit. They are uncomfortable. You wear it for more than half an hour. You're sweating. It's horrible. It, the experience isn't that good. You get a headache, uh, either a sore ears or whatever from wearing all the encumbrances of a VR headset. When you're in it, it is pretty impressive, but it gets tiresome. And so if you said, and I can say this as a gamer, right? So I'm playing at the moment The Last of Us 2, which is an awesome game. It's a PS5 game, right? So I'm playing that hands down one of the best games ever made and people celebrate that if you said to me john what if they made a vr version of that would you play it there's no way i'd play it as a vr version really because i can sit and play the last of us for two or three hours in a stretch there's no way you can play a vr game for more than about half an hour before you just get vr fatigue right okay i just won't you just feel shit wearing a vr headset for more than half an hour now in five ten years if they figured out and this sounds sci-fi and ridiculous but they're working on it so they will of course yeah where you may well have a situation where you can put a little earbud in and a contact lens in Mm. and so you don't have this stupid thing hanging on your head and someone else made a joke about it which is especially you know about metaverses and all the stuff everyone's all getting you know excited about one of the jokes i heard was well you can go to a thousand nightclubs in the metaverse but, you know, you put a head – you're, you know, some dude in your basement with a big headset, a big VR headset on. That's like a, that's like a, a human repellent device. Yeah. You know, if people, if people go to nightclubs basically for one reason, then having that headset on your head ain't going to solve the problem that you've got when you go into a nightclub, right? People want human interaction. I, I mean, I'm ranting, but I don't think that – I just think the, all the med, metaverse talk and all that is mostly bullshit. Yeah, and I think, and I guess I say it also because my business is predicated on real human beings meeting each other in real life, having a drink, having a palmer, playing games together. That's what I said earlier is the the whole context of this fortress business, and what we want to encourage, not sitting at home putting a headset on and having a sort of virtual version of that. I yeah. want to I want to promote real versions of things. It's a great point. It's a really, good, really, really good point. I, I don't want to talk about COVID because no one likes talking about it. But no. when you went through that, I'm sure the building blocks started just before it and then COVID kind of hit. How did that go for you and Adrian as business owners? I don't know. Did you start to question, is this going to ever end? Are we no. going to get out of this? Like, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, we, we spent two years from that idea, that handshake to build the, start the company. We then, that was around March of April of 2018. So then we... It took us two years to build this place. And then the doors opened, well, roughly two years. Doors opened March 13, 2020, which was effectively day one of the pandemic because that was the day, you know, the Grand Prix was cancelled. Yeah, the Grand Prix. So we shut the doors four days later and then we were shut basically for most of 2020. In fact, in hindsight, you know, there was some piss poor openings we had in 2020. Like you allowed 50 people in the joint. Yeah. You you can look around and see that. You know, you not if you can only get fifty in, you don't open because you can't even. It's just you're losing. I heard fortune. you. I heard you had a great sixtieth birthday here though. Fiftieth. Fiftieth. Sorry. Fiftieth. <laughs> Gee, just gave him 50th. ten years. Fiftieth birthday. <laughs> sorry. I'm glad. Maybe maybe you thought I was seventy and then you were giving me a, giving me a. Uh, a I nearly wasn't going to say the number, and I thought, oh. 60, Jesus. Sorry, mate. I, I heard know, you had a good fiftieth. Was that rough under the lights here? <laughs> was that Conan? Were you coming yes. that night? Yeah, it looked no, Thals- no, here, Thalsa Doom. Oh, oh right. there you go. He looked awesome. I didn't, re- brother- did, didn't, didn't recognise him when I walked in. That was in 2021. Season. And your brother Paul, apparently, what, what was he? Oh, what did he? Braveheart. Braveheart. Was he Braveheart, yeah. Oh, he was telling me Pirates of the Caribbean. 
couldn't no. I just remember the heavy eye makeup. Yeah, yeah. So that was actually 2021. And then most of we, we got like, a, I think, a, a month or so of opening in 2021. And then we were closed for another nine months. We don't really think of this business having been opened in earnest since about April this year. Wow. Because every other month that we'd been open was compromised. Of course. Or just under a blanket of COVID or not open. So it wasn't really until about April this year. And then if you think about it, it was only in October this year that the state government basically took away the pandemic um, directives yeah. or whatever it is. So even after April for the subsequent months until what, only a few weeks ago, we've still effectively had a some COVID edicts that were sort of governing our the policy of society. So it remains to be seen whether in the subsequent next year or two we're going to actually see some natural growth because there, there must still be some, you know, COVID anxieties swirling around sure. and issues that people haven't yet resolved and haven't gone out. I mean, there's probably plenty of people who still haven't actually gone out much since COVID even mm. though it's effectively over. They're not out there venturing out into the, you know, into the sunlight much. Yeah. So... So just to elaborate more on Josh's point, you personally, how do you go through that time period? Because you've gone from, and we'll talk about, I'm really excited to talk about your career prior to this, but yeah. you've gone from that career into this whole new world and now this hits. Yeah. How, how are you going personally through that? Um, well, you, because something is unprecedented, you don't have a sort of manual or a handbook. Sure. So you, you kind of... Um, you make it up as you go and it depends on you. I think a lot of things, the way you cope is based on your own temperament and your own view of the world. And Tanya, my wife, will often say that one of the things she likes about me, I suppose, is that I'm uh, an eternal optimist. And I guess you have to be also to be an entrepreneur and to, to sort of be Definitely. able to get on with things, right? Because if you if you allow yourself to dwell on the pessimistic what-ifs, then you wouldn't do anything and you wouldn't take any risk because usually if you look at it too closely, a lot of things you just go, I can't do that because it's too scary and too risky. But if you're more of a positive sort of optimistic person and you can just always see some way out of something, at least how I could mentally get through some of those times was just to constantly use it as a way to test myself to see if I can find a way out and mm. to find a way mentally out through some challenging times like all right well this is just a problem to solve mm. and not get emotional about it ne never really at all uh, around woe is me why did this happen it's not fair never once would I say that I just said it's fact let's be fair right this is a horrible thing it's not not a good thing and it's so unprecedented no one knows what to do but at least it's I like to sometimes think it's just another interesting puzzle to solve yeah and provide a great way to look at it well, you know, I'm lucky as well because I've been around for a while. I'm nearly 60, by the way. Um, uh, you, you can, you, can um, you, you know, you have a few more tools in your toolkit to cope with things. And also yeah. you've got a few been working and you're not living hand to mouth. There was a couple of moments during COVID when we were looking at prior, say, to when there was no job keeper announced yeah. and there was we didn't know for instance whether we'd get any rent relief for a minute or two we were we were struggling with the concept that right well we we certainly had some working capital in the bank to get this business stood up but that'll be gone in a handful of months god and we're obligated to pay rent but we've got no money coming in mm. we're we've got to pay salaries we've got no money coming in so we're going to torch this war chest we've got to, to as mm. working capital this could be gone in you know a handful of months and we're out we're bankrupt so there was a couple of moments like that where it was just like, oh, wow. And then I think you just looked at it and went, 
it sounds childish or a bit elementary, but it was just like, we're not going to let that happen. Yep. Like we just, I know you say, well, we just won't pay the rent and see what happens. Like it just, it, cause it's so unprecedented. It wasn't like we'll break the law or be criminals and not do dishonorable things and honor contracts. It's just more, well, no one knows what to do. So we're just going to hold off doing anything until mm. we understand what to do. And yeah. so, and now the other thing was, well, we you're putting priorities forward, keep people on the payroll as much as we can. So everybody, including all the executives here, took a giant, like just said, all right, well, we'll take the pay cuts to make sure that we can cover everybody so that no one has to be let go. Wow. And this is before JobKeeper kicked in and then we sort of looked at it and went, well, that's going to help subsidise or get everybody over the line. So that's good, tick. And we just went through methodically all of these major sort of as like a triage process. What are the major existential threats to our business? And then tackle them in order of the worst ones. So okay. rent and salary were the main ones we had to deal with because – if you haven't got staff and you have to and you haven't got a premises, you haven't got a business. So we had to think about those. How many staff members did you have at that stage, roughly? I think about then we had about twenty full okay. time, and then a whole bunch of casuals. Sure. And, you know that was horrible for them because JobKeeper didn't apply to casuals. Of course, yeah. And so they were just cast to the four winds, and you're like, okay, well, what can you? You can't do much. So one thing we did do later in COVID was we organised our kitchen was allowed to operate because kitchens could to serve food like a you know food delivery like uber yeah, eats and that yeah. so we set up a staff meals program mm. so everybody who was working casuals or otherwise could buy proper cooked meals for five dollars a meal delivered to their home wow. and so our kitchen kept busy and then people just put orders in and we just and our ops guys who had nothing to do because they were on furlough were just driving the cars <laughs> around delivering food to all the staff every week so right. it just meant that we were able to do things to keep busy and just That's keep smart. people in, in contact with the business who had to be let, not let go but, you know, couldn't work because casual work didn't have any security. So that was kind of pretty grim. Positive side of things was almost no one left. I mean, some people left because they just left the state or whatever. When COVID hit, a lot of people just fled for the hills. But then when we got reopened and even now, there are heaps of people working here full-time but certainly heaps of casuals who signed on back from day one prior to COVID who then are still working for us That's now. That's great. So that was, I think, a testament to the, we were able to navigate that tricky part. It's amazing. We really want to get into your career mm. uh, and early days too. So you mentioned the music industry. I'll let you tell the story. I don't know anything really about it. Dee's told me a little bit, but would love to hear. I know you mentioned Slipknot, but from the very beginning, how did you build your career? Uh, yeah. Um, well, it started, I mean, when I was a, same as like talking about video games, from the age of about 11 or 10 or 11, I was just enamored by heavy metal music it was just my fascination and obsession so like the first album I, I bought was on a cassette tape was Iron Maiden Number of the Beast and then throughout the 80s as a kid I just I mean I liked other stuff I mean my tastes have narrowed more as I got older I mean when I was a teenager in the 80s you know I liked pop music and other things but my number one focus of, of culture and things that got me excited was heavy metal music and in the 80s of course it was Bands like Judas Priest and Iron Maiden and Queensryche and all these kind of cool bands that I loved that were current. I mean, Iron Maiden still makes records as does yeah. Judas Priest, but they're now seen as you know, sort of veteran acts. But then in the 80s, that was their heyday. Everything about that just was what I wanted to do. And, you know, I would dream as a kid. I lived in Altona, so it was I didn't have access to go to gigs or anything, but I would listen to – there was heavy metal shows on Triple R and PBS even in the 80s, and I would listen to them and hear about – venues in the city that you know or even oh, it was a place called 
the Bell Street Rock in Preston. I didn't even know where Preston or Bell Street was, <laughs> but I like, I, I want to go there one day and see a band, you know, and yeah. I just had this idea that I wanted to be involved in music and bands. Can't play any music, zero musical talent, zero. But I just loved the idea of, I didn't even know what the music industry was, but I just wanted to be involved in this because it was my passion and my um, obsession really. And then I got into collecting vinyl as a, you know, year 11 and 12, we'd go to, on weekends, go to vinyl, um, uh, you know, Camberwell Town Hall um, record fairs and just be always collecting heaps of albums and vinyl and just loving it. And then I, you know, I got some pretty good marks at school and then I went to Melbourne Uni and studied law arts. Didn't even know what I was doing. I mean, didn't, no one had got really gone to uni before in my family, so no one gave me a template of what that looked like. So just turn up to Melbourne Uni and sort of figure it out and um, lived there at Queen's College for three years and worked, tried to work on what I wanted to do and pretty quickly realised didn't want to be a lawyer, didn't dig it, but because I didn't know what else to do, I just finished my degrees and as I was doing my degree, I was lucky to get a job at a little record store called Greville Records and uh, that's it still exists in, in Greville Street, Paran. And when I was, I think it was my first job, 17 and a half, and I was just running errands and, and then eventually, you know, after a year or so, I'd be throwing the keys and I'd open up the joint on Saturdays and be the guy looking after the store on Saturdays. And then, then I got a job cleaning the offices on a Saturday morning from like 6am till 10am and then open the store at 10 and then, and then um, close it at 5. And then I, my cousins owned a Missing Link record store which was another cult record store in the city and because they knew I was working at Greville, they offered me a, a, another job there. So I was sort of in doing two, two record store gigs, which got me sort of first, first foot in the door in the music industry. And then I started, I was, you know, at this stage I was going to gigs all the time and just getting more immersed, I guess, in that early 90s and late 80s scene around Melbourne of bands and gigs and everything else. Started managing bands and just getting really into it. And then I finished... Was it when I finished? Yeah, sort of around the last year or so of uni. I also got another job that my cousin owned a sort of a independent distribution company that was distributing CDs that was coming as parallel imports from the USA and Germany and okay. stuff and sending them to record stores. This is all for people who are probably under the age of 30. Like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, <laughs> but it was in those days there was a thing called record stores and you would go in there and buy CDs and vinyl and it wasn't just JB Hi-Fi. You know, nearly every suburb had a had a record store, right? So it was a big industry in the 90s and this business was about bringing CDs in and packing them and sending them out to the stores. Then I set up a local distribution company with my cousin and as part of this company called Siren Records. My cousin Nigel was there sponsoring that. And in the end I signed about, it was about 80 or 90 or maybe more, little bands around Melbourne, around Australia that we would press their CDs and do some, do some marketing and put yeah, them cool. into the stores. And I was managing about four or five bands. And then I saw an ad in the old days also then. There was, they were called street papers. They were like weekly Wednesday culture mags that were thrown into all the stores around Melbourne and that would tell you what the gigs were this week. It was called Beat, Beat Magazine and Impress Magazine. And there was an ad for a general manager of a record company and I just thought, oh, well, I didn't know what to do. I'd finished my degrees. I didn't want to be a lawyer. I didn't want to do any of that. And I just had a catalogue from Siren and and just a handwritten resume and I just chucked it in an envelope and just said, you know, went for the job. How old were you, roughly? Uh, 23 or 24. And it turned out that it was a it was Roadrunner Records and it was owned – it was currently being managed and distributed by a big company, a big independent company in Australia called Shock Records, 
which was a which in the 90s and 2000s was the biggest sort of independent distribution company in Australia for distributing CDs and, and albums and stuff. And so David Williams, who was the who was in charge of that company, interviewed me. You know, I just rocked up to the Croxton Hotel or something like that in Brunswick and turned up and just like I'm dressed sort of now and didn't never been in for a job interview or anything and just he asked me some questions and I said, well, I manage bands. I put out, you know, I had a pile of CDs and I said, I've done all this stuff before and then I didn't hear anything for about two months. I completely forgot about it and then got a call to have another interview with another bloke and that's another story. But then they just said, yeah, when can you start? So next thing you know, I was, I was handed a, a cardboard box that was the legacy of whoever had been managing Roadrunner prior to me and they said, that's Roadrunner Records, there you go. And, um, That's your manual to work it out. Yeah, and I the the company was owned at the time a subsidiary of a, a global company, Roadrunner Records, was founded by a guy named Case Wessels in Amsterdam in the Netherlands. Okay. And so the main headquarters was Netherlands and New York City. So Case, who you know became a bit of a mentor and became he was my boss actually, not David Williams. Case was my boss. Kind of took me under his wing from the age of twenty four, and I worked for Roadrunner Records for nearly eighteen years. And uh, I built the Australian company up from 1995 to 2007. And we, from that point, from the mid-90s, we were very much just a metal label. The biggest bands on the label that at the time were bands like Sepultura and Fear Factory, Typo Negative. Now, these are massive cult bands from the 90s. If you know about 90s metal, they were the biggest, some of the biggest bands in the yeah. 90s. In fact, the first record I put out, was Sepultura Roots, which debuted at number two on the Billboard chart and went platinum. So Whoa. that was pretty massive and it was a great way to start my career. <laughs> Absolutely. But then from late 90s, we struck gold and literally. I mean, we signed Slipknot. You know, everyone's heard of them. They're probably, yeah. especially in the early 2000s, the biggest, one of the biggest bands on the planet, certainly the biggest metal band in the planet and still arguably biggest, one of the biggest metal bands of all time. And then we signed Nickelback, which biggest rock band of all time practically at least they were in the early 2000s and mm. they had some hit that just one hit after another we did uh, on one record all the right reasons in 2006 or five had we that went, one <laughs> yeah we went five times platinum on that so we sold wow. 300 more than 350,000 records in australia with that so That's... we just you know it was just a giant i mean the business was very independent and small and then we just grew and grew and grew we shifted distribution from Sony to Warner, Universal to Warner. So it became a, quite a significant record company and well, very well known in Australia. And then in um, 2007, I um, got asked to go move to New York City to be kind of like one of the generals there for Roadrunner based out of New York. And so we picked up sticks and went there with a two and a half year old and my wife was pregnant with my daughter and wasn't born then. And then... And the dog as well? Did you take yeah, the dog? Yeah, our yeah. dog at the time. <laughs> and um, and lived in New York City for five years as a, and I was sort of captaining um, 2IC for a time there. Um, 3IC, 2IC, I can't remember, but basically one of the key people there wow. in New York. And then it all ended quite <clears> abruptly <throat> because Warner Music, who'd bought us... Is that Warner Brothers? Well, no, not really. Sort not, of in the really. same kind of. They used to be okay. Warner yep. Music is independent. Yep, and then they own they own a label called Warner Brothers, but gotcha. it's nothing to do with the movies yep. studio. When they ended up buying 100% of Roadrunner, a year after they purchased us, they fired about 55 people. So all the ex Roadrunner people, we call it the Red Wedding, Roadrunner Red Wedding, and we got all whacked. So you know, <laughs> not everybody, but most, they shut down all the companies around the world. Shut down like stack of people got sacked from the New York business, including me. And so that was a pretty shocking and, you know, I probably 
figured I might have been still working for Roadrunner if um, that hadn't happened. But it was shocking and brutal. But in the end, it was, you know, I would be here now and with Fortress if that hadn't happened. And then came back to Australia, started working for Village Roadshow, was there for five years. Quite a different, that was out, out of the industry, out of the music industry, moving into a broader entertainment sort of thing. And I guess I, in the early 2000s, I did an MBA at Melbourne Business School before I moved to New York because I wanted to try to be, be not a one-trick I didn't want to just be a music industry guy. I wanted to try to extend my my knowledge and my skills of business so that I could be more employable. Perhaps yeah, I had sure. some prescience about what might happen <laughs> in my career later in, in, and then um, built up, you know, as a chief digital officer at Village, worked more on business strategy and thinking about the disruption of digital in more traditional business and then told you the story and then went off and set up Fortress. In those days at Roadrunner, when this whole shift came with digital music and illegal downloading and I mean, we've been watching or well, you watched the whole series of the Spotify on the story of Spotify and Netflix, that is a like disrupt is a perfect word, I think, for, for that movement. Mm. What was it like on your side of the fence from, from when all this started with the illegal downloading, Pirate Bay, that kind of work? Yeah. I remember in 99 um, when I first discovered Napster, someone told me about it yeah. and I'd, I'd had coffee with a guy who was a bit of a sort of futurist type fellow. And he sort of warned me that this was coming and you should check it out and it's going to dis- it's going to be a, a tidal wave of change. And I was like, oh, okay, I, do a bit, I didn't even know. And I went home and in the you know, 99 there was still kind of dial-up broadband pretty Y2K, much. Y2K, yeah. Yeah, was, <laughs> and yeah, well, you had like, you know, 128 kilobits a second dial-up, bro- um, not broadband, just dial-up connection. You know, if you were <laughs> using it, no one could use your phone because no one had mobiles either, hardly anyone did. So I went home and connected and f- downloaded Napster and I remember downloading a, a song and or something, I can't remember what it was and sort of not fully just going, holy shit, I'm, you know, like just playing a song now and that I didn't pay for it and now I have it. What, do I own it? Like I was just, I was sort of a bit, it was so new and so mystifying that it was difficult to really appreciate or understand the implications of what it meant and it was sort of like for the music industry, I think for a lot of us it felt like, you know, the old frog in a pot kind of analogy that you yeah. you kind of – it's happening around you. You're not sure whether it's a good thing, it's a bad thing. I came later to realise it was a very bad thing and I don't mean bad thing in terms of – I totally love Spotify. Streaming is wonderful but I don't like copyright theft. Sure. And, you know, my business here is built on – everything I've ever done has been based on ownership of intellectual property and I don't – think that people should have just some innate right to steal someone else's IP. And I find it really hypocritical when, you know, even back in the day when even at Village Roadshow, one of the jobs I had was to sort of be a sort of the chief piracy guy who advised the bosses on the state of the world when it came to piracy. Wow, okay. And, you know, you had disingenuous claims by Google because we'd often have a problem with the fact people would be searching movies on Google for torrents and... Google would argue, oh, well, you know, hands off. It's not our, you know, we're just dumb pipes. It's not our, you know. And we'd say, well, yeah, but your algorithm is doing auto-suggest that tells them to move to that torrent. The main point I had wasn't all about that. It was, God forbid you'd ever unlock Google's intellectual property. Like if you yeah. shared on the internet how their, how their search engine works, right, this is all their secret source. If that mm. was out there as anyone could copy or if you set up a, a website called, you know, Frugal and had an exact sort of replica of their trademark... <laughs> 
they'd lose their minds and you'd be sued into oblivion. Yeah. And yet when it came to our IP, we own, you know, movies we as Village Roadshow had bought the rights to and spent lots of money marketing. And then they and then people stole those movies. You go, well, hang on a minute. Why is that okay? Or music. In the early days, I thought it was kind of cool and everyone did. Well, even everyone in the music industry just thought, oh, this is pretty awesome. Like I can even I was getting music and downloading, going, Oh my God, this is cool. And then it yeah. sort of as a frog in the pot dawned on you're like, this is shit house for my business yeah. because everybody's just getting music for free and we're trying to sell it. Now I also understand and no stranger to the argument. Well, you know, the record companies were rapacious and were forcing people to buy a shitty CD with one good song and all that. No, yeah. no, no argument about that. In fact, the disruption had to happen, the dis- disintermediation of music so that you could get one song and not have to buy the whole album. Everyone agrees with that. And in fact, my main position on music theft or music piracy, whatever you want to call it, was until you could actually legally get downloads in Australia, which wasn't until about 2006, if I recall, that when iTunes opened its store up. It took about five or six years for it to become a, a, an easy option for an Australian to buy music as a download. Remember, this is pre-streaming. This is when you could buy a song for a buck fifty or yeah. whatever download. And until then, the only options the music industry presented in Australia was either buy a CD or steal. There was no they – didn't, mm. they didn't innovate quickly enough and say – well, but the punters was, was, had spoken. They said, we don't want to buy a CD, we want to download. So what? I was always a bit ambivalent about that because I'd say if, someone want, if the customer wants to do this and they're prepared to pay for it and we're not providing that service and then they're just going around it, they don't want to buy a CD, then I sort of feel I felt a bit more um, harder to point fingers and say, you know, you shouldn't steal. Yeah. But once the legal way to get music was in place, and that's, I guess, at the heart of Spotify's argument was – we drain the swamp of pirates because how hard is it to pay 10 bucks a month to just yeah. get or 15 bucks a month to get all your songs? Most people these days shrugging, yeah, look, that's fair and I've got no problem with that. Or I get a free version with ads rather than go and get all my music from BitTorrent or whatever. So, yeah. so I feel like that's where the division was. And once you make streaming and, and all of that available in, a, in an easy and c- convenient and reasonably priced way, then you absolutely can point the finger at pirates and say you shouldn't steal. Yep. When it comes to band managing, so your early days and your passion for music and, and I guess your craft in, in managing a band, did you do any of that when it came to your role at Roadrunner in terms of managing artists and stuff? Not Well, not really managing the artists in terms of their day-to-days, although when you're sort of signing acts, I signed some bands to the label. When you're signing bands, often you, in the early days before they have managers, the <laughs> label kind of has to do a lot of things, help them get gigs, help them help them establish themselves, in the, especially in those days as cut and dry as signing an act, putting them in the recording studio, putting out their CD and then waving goodbye and hope you know hope for the best. And we were a very hands-on label. So we would do a lot of the services that a manager typically would do, but we were always desperate to try and find managers for our bands because we really didn't want to do that stuff because a manager's role was pretty thankless. The point of being a manager is if you do end up with a band that becomes very successful, it can be very lucrative as to be a manager. For sure. Um, and in those days, there wasn't the concept of a 360 record deal, which is what really, I don't even, I'm out of the industry for a while, so I don't even know that's the term anymore. But in my day, you only signed a band really to a recording contract and maybe sometimes publishing, which was a different kind of thing. Nowadays, when you sign, most labels when they're signing acts will sign an act for basically a, a 360 of all the rights, so merchandise and touring and so that yep. they're getting a piece of everything because it's an acknowledgement that it's like a, 
a label is kind of like a bank investing in this band. So if the band starts making money, no matter what the channel is, the label should be seeing some of the fruits of that. Whereas in, in the days of in the 90s and 2000s, you would just get your cut from the album, from the music, okay. not from the touring and the merch. Oh, so that was totally separate. Separate. Interesting. Right, okay. So so for those that, are, that might be listening that actually want to get into the music industry as an artist, mm. what tends to be the process? Like how many artists would you guys sign say per year how long do those contracts last for yeah. what are the what are the signs that hey this isn't working like yeah well i'm recalling that i'm 10 years out so yeah. and i got out of the industry just on the cusp of it becoming a fully digital industry sure. so in my time even in 2012 <laughs> cd's were still the dominant format yeah so i think that it's quite different now. Uh, even the concept of albums has changed. Now, if you're a rock artist, it's still very much an album-driven idea, but some of the pop bands and pop acts are really just singles-driven and just putting music out, like yeah. drip-feeding one song, one song, one song. All I can say is in the time that I was in the business, you would typically be looking to sign a band for five to seven albums and they were called options. So you would okay. sign for one, a guarantee, you would pay for the first one and then the label would have an option to keep going and every time that they exercise that option they would then pay more money towards the next recording and and then take a royalty out of that and okay. so it could be you know you could sign a band and have a sign on fee you might pay them $20,000 advance just to sign or 50,000 I mean it depends in the USA is a lot more money usually but Australia would be 20 and then you say all right well then we'll give you a $30,000 advance for album one. And then if you get to album two, it's 45 or 50 and then 80 and then it goes up in price. And then as the albums come through, usually the royalty rate would increase Okay. because the band, there's an indication that the band's becoming more successful because you're continuing with the options. Nowadays, because Spotify and streaming is the dominant way, it's a different economic makeup. So it doesn't work as simply like that. In fact, I probably wouldn't be able to speak with confidence. That's okay. What I wouldn't say and do suspect it's quite an unfortunate scenario because of streaming is that for rock bands, what's missing now makes it really hard, metal bands, rock bands, is in the old days, one of the ways you could develop an audience would be you would have a thousand CDs you could press, you'd go on the road touring and then every night you could sell some CDs and some merch which would effectively pay for that night's petrol and motel or yeah. whatever where you're staying. Nowadays, the population of Australia would have to stream your song that night for you to pay for the motel. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, getting getting 20 million streams might give you, you know, 500 bucks or something. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm just speculating, but I know it's relative pittance versus what, you know, remember if you could sell a CD at $20, even just 20 bucks, then you could sell, you know, 50 CDs and you've got $1,000 that yeah. night. So you've got $1,000 that goes towards food, petrol and, and your hotel. I mean, to make $1,000 out of streaming and to get – you don't get the money straight away either, right? You have to wait for the accounting from the from the streaming service. You don't get the money that night. Mm. So there's a real um, unfortunate sort of reduction in income generating opportunities for bands because that's how you could fund your touring. Nowadays, it's either probably – I don't know how they do it. I mean, again, I'm out of the business. But I imagine it, the burden now falls a lot on labels too because if you sign an act, they're going to go, well, I can't – you're going to have to put more towards tour support and sort of bankroll our tour because yeah, okay. we can't even make money on the road anymore. Maybe you can sell T-shirts. But in the old days, you could sell T-shirts and CDs. Mm. Did you love your time on the road? Did you enjoy that process? And what was that like for you? Where did you get to go all over the world? 
Uh, yeah, I didn't do much of that though. No? I mean, okay. I, I mean, I did it optionally. Like I went sometimes yep. on tour because I looked after Southeast Asia and New Zealand for Roadrunner for a few years. So I would sometimes go overseas to be sort of chaperoning or just sort of attending some of the concerts and touring option, options that bands would do. For, fortunately, I didn't have to do that that much because it was more just running the show from the office in Melbourne and and it was an option to go on. Yeah, you know, if the band was touring Australia and I wanted to go to Perth or Brisbane, I whatever I go. If it was a Singapore or Hong Kong, I'd sometimes go. And then when I was in New York, you would just go, you know, again, optionally if you wanted. But often the beauty of being in New York City is bands are coming to you. Yeah. So you yeah. just end up going every, every week there'd be <laughs> one or two concerts you could go to. What was your relationship with some of those bands? Were you Did you ever get quite tight with, like you mentioned, you were in Seoul with Slipknot, for example. You, what was your relationship with them? Yeah, um, some bands I had quite um, good relationships with and some not so good. So, uh, and, you know, I mean, one I, one guy I got really friendly with was um, Mike Kroger, the bass player of Nickelback. Yeah. He's a terrific fellow. And, um, and it, certainly when the band first toured and they were blowing up, it was their first ever Australian tour, they were, you know, we were, we were thick as thieves for a time because we they knew that we were working our asses off to try and build their career. And then when it exploded, they they knew how much work we'd done to help bring it about in Australia it was their music it wasn't us but it was they just knew that we'd put everything into it and they were very appreciative and you know Chad and the others were there too but mm. Mike in particular played like even extra attention to sort of cultivating you know good good friendships and 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 really really going out of his way to you know help make things happen because bands the smarter bands were the ones who would realize that you know not not treat the label like a bunch of dickheads or mm. like we were some sort of you know adversarial um, people combating them we bands that we like the most are the ones who realize that the label were there doing our best to try to make things happen and not to argue with us if we're trying to get you know press or media for them sure we want to try to help them right and some bands most bands saw that i mean the slipknot guys i'd met quite a few times and but not Never that personally, sort okay. of just friendships. Um, but you know, when they toured, they'd, hey John, how are you going? And you know, chatter and all that. And then it was often the the young. I mean, it was my bands that I signed. There was a couple of bands I shouldn't name names, but one one particular well known international band that's got a lead singer, main man who is a bit infamous. I certainly had a massive couple of run-ins with him. Okay, he would get off the plane <laughs> when they toured Australia, go straight to the record store at the airport, and if their album wasn't this is a this is a full on metal band. If their album wasn't sort of sm smeared all over the record store in the in the in the oh, in you know Tullamarine, then it'd be like, you guys are fucked, and I can't <laughs> believe you're coming here and all this. And you know, I came all this way, and my album's not even I couldn't even find it and all that. So there was certain um, you know prima donna. Yeah, acts. I was going to say. But you know, I used to say it's a bit like footy, right? I mean, you guys are in that world and talk a lot about that. I mean, I love North Melbourne Football Club. And I, you know, obviously enjoyed in the 90s seeing the kings of the club just killing it, right? Yeah. And then we all know that the, the, you know, the controversies and everything about North Melbourne in the 90s and what happened there. I never, I never cared for – people would say, oh, Wayne Carey this and that. And I'd go, I don't give a shit what kind of blokes yeah. these people are. Like, I mean, I just go to watch the footy, right? Yeah. And it's like the musicians. Like, you do get close if you're in the industry, but you shouldn't be thinking that – just because they can play guitar and sing and write a good song, they need to be a good bloke. Yeah, 100%. some are, some aren't. Yeah, and and that's fine. Or smart guys. Some are really, really sharp and really smart and interesting. Some aren't so sharp, but are just as interesting. Yeah. Some are just hilarious dudes. And I mean, one guy uh, who I love, who he's not in the band anymore, but he used to be the drummer of Fear Factory, uh, Raymond Herrera, and he 
I used to love when they toured and they used to love coming to Australia and we had a great time. And he just, the one thing I remember about him and he's hilarious is the, I've never seen a man eat more food. And he wasn't, <laughs> I mean, he wasn't, a, he was a huge bloke. He's not particularly overweight. He's just a huge freaking bloke. Yeah. And, you know, when you're drumming, fast drumming in a metal band, double kick drum, you know, for two hours, just, I mean, talking the about sweat. You, you must burn like <laughs> 10,000 calories, right? It's they talk about exercise. So before a gig, he'd always go, let's go somewhere like Hard Rock Cafe. Not very adventurous. He wanted to go to, you know, the American diner yeah. joint. <laughs> yeah. And he would order, I remember, he'd order a plate, a giant bowl of spaghetti carbonara. He'd have a burger and fries and he'd have two giant milkshakes and a steak. Fuck. Yeah, you've never seen more. <laughs> he would eat 20,000 calories and he'd be drinking milkshakes in between mouths of steak and spaghetti and burger. And he would eat the whole thing and then got on stage like two hours later. And just, you know, That's just, just just drill those drums like just thunderous, <laughs> fast drumming. Nice. And Fear Factory had that particular industrial sound that was really fast and clinical. And he'd just kill it, right? But Love probably it. couldn't have done it without that much fuel in yeah, the tank. The car and, it, and a huge bloke, so he needed yeah. a lot anyway. I have to address it because I don't know where it comes from and you'd probably know better than it, well, a lot of us. But why is it all... With Nickelback, why is it? Why does everyone talk badly about Nickelback in a funny, jokingly way? Where did that come well, from? Um, well, it's a good one, and um, it goes to something that it's a bit dear to my heart, actually. One of the things that you know, I guess it's a business thing, and and it's a it's also a thing that I've always thought was interesting as a way to motivate. Was you know, it doesn't hurt when you're in a in a business. So certainly, if you are playing in niches like heavy metal music and hard rock music, which is what Nick Roadrunner was in, we to, to get ourselves out of bed and get motivated and part of the culture was you know we understood that the music we put out wasn't commercial and mainstream and we liked the idea that we were it was a bit of us versus them now what's interesting here is when i say wasn't commercial and mainstream in particular it was what well, was certainly mainstream like nickelback hugely commercial yeah. what we knew was wrote heavy metal music is generally speaking not something that the music press and the hipster Triple J world dig. Yeah. Right? Now, funnily enough, in the 90s for a period they did, they had a particular music um, director who was a big fan of our label and would play a lot of metal. And then later in the, in the 2000s or maybe late 90s, he got replaced and a different guy came in. And, you know, ultra hipster, indie, indie, indie rock, alternative rock, cool, too cool for school stuff. And... Roadrunner Records and the music we were doing and, you know, metal was just, you know, curmudgeon music for, you know, for bogans and yobbos and, and a blokey <laughs> thing. And it was all bullshit, right? I don't mm. agree with that. But the impression was that, you know, that's not cool music. Now, for us, you know, that was manna from heaven. Like, we just love that because we, we, we wanted to have an opposition. Like sometimes it can help stimulate, yeah. right? You go, right, okay, we're not cool and we're not sexy and we're not the – you know, we're not the Strokes in those days or the, yeah. the Vines or whatever the bands of those days were all like ultra hipster Triple J bands. We can't get our songs on the radio and we couldn't. So we said, all right, well, let's double down on that and lean into that as a, as a, as a concept that we want to be, you know, we don't care about being cool. We just want to be metal to the core and, you know, just, just live our values and just be true to what we believe is our music and, and, and preach the gospel of metal and rock. <laughs> and when Nickelback came along, it was just, just tears in the eye of joy just loved it because there was no band that the hipster crowd the the alternative indie rock crowd hated more and we used to, you could have almost plotted a graph that the more hate the more record sales yeah so wow. we were just like 
every time there would be a joke on TV about Nickelback or they would be, you know, pilloried by some like too cool kind of, you know, age music writer, one star, you know, worst band in the world. We're just like, fuck yes. <laughs> gold, another gold album. <laughs> and, and just just because every, you know, all the average mainstream people, I mean average, just mainstream normie music lovers would be like, fuck you guys. We love Nickelback. Yeah. And then you'd go to a concert, you know, sold out in three seconds, Rod Laverina, Chockers, and and all the haters would be saying how crap this band is. And you just go to this concert and it'd be wall to wall people just loving it, singing all the hits. You know, never was a true expression that they hate you because they ain't you. Mm. And and there was just you know we we sort of could track the point when Nickelback's sort of um, peak started to you know decline was when they weren't getting talked about as much anymore. Wow! Because it was that record sales really really were calibrated to the hate. And we just loved it. The more that the, the the cool kids hated on Nickelback, we would just be hugging ourselves on Mondays if we got <laughs> if we got you know some smart aleck on the project saying Nickelback this or having a sketch about Nickelback. It's just yes, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> couldn't get better Amazing. press. And so it was also part of. I mean, me, my music taste is you know I can't stand alternative and independent indie rock or whatever mm. they call it these days. I hate it. Right, I hated all those bands that had the in front of them hated all yeah, those gotcha. bands hey none of it surely you like the wiggles uh. oh, well, i can't maybe my kids once but i can't i can't abide former guest of the show he's yeah. trying to stitch you up there you go <laughs> i can't abide triple j and i can't stand any of that stuff i can't bear alternative music and and so you know i just for me it's always been about metal and about the and about you know the riff and the tunes that that you know and so as i said earlier the older i've got my taste of they're very deep but quite very narrow. So I love all metal from black metal through death metal, Viking metal, traditional heavy metal, prog metal, every subgenre of metal pretty much I can talk about and I dig. But And I just love to explore new music. Yeah. And I just try all the time to find new bands and new music within, the, within quite a, you know, like a rich but deep vein of music in that genre. And I don't have time in the day to worry about what the pop hit is and people often laugh and say oh John you're a music guy have you heard of science I go I don't even never they've been number one for you know <laughs> six months I go I never even heard of them because I don't <laughs> TikTok I do, stars, yeah. yeah I don't care and I live in my own bubble of yeah. the tunes that, the music genre that I like but to try to not be a you know like the, the old grumpy old man I do obsess over the new bands that are coming out I'm always desperate to find new metal bands to listen to don't just listen to yeah old Iron Maiden records I want to always be finding new bands. Yeah. We're coming towards the end of the pod. We can't let this pod go without a, a thought on North Melbourne, but we'll leave that to the end. You don't have to answer this. We can cut this, but we sat down with your brother, Paul, oh, about yeah. a week ago, had a coffee <laughs> with him, um, former guest of the show. We had a good laugh. And I said, oh, is there anything I should ask John? And he said, ask him about the time he was taken hostage. Oh, now, you, don't have to, you don't have to answer it, but if you want to share that story... We'd love to hear it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would because my kids are old enough, so they know that now. But um, they, the, the, um, the maybe a few years ago when I hadn't told them about it, I wouldn't, I wouldn't probably share it. But sure. and it's not. You know, it's just a, um, a one of those odd things that happened many years ago that sort of is buried away as something that just a just a fascinating story. But yeah. when I was um, around this time, December nineteen ninety two. A, a dude broke into the shared house I was living in, like full on balaclava and um, and you know trench coat, and um, basically bailed me up and 
had already captured the rest of my housemates and bound them. And then um, I woke up with a knife at my throat and, you know, get on your fucking knees, cunt, and all this. Wow. And, and, uh, and frog march with a knife, butcher's knife at my throat uh, into a room with everybody else bound and sort of tied up on the sort of a base of a futon sort of wooden mattress, wooden slat sort of base. And, yeah, it was held hostage for about four and a half hours and uh, until we got sort of rescued by a housemate who turned up late and attacked him and he escaped but um, never found and never caught and, you know, and he took our uni IDs and stuff so he sort of went away, got away with our um, sort of I know where you live kind of business and had threatened to murder us and all this sort of business for a whole four hours or so. So there was a lot of quite full-on reflections that one had to make when you were bound and, and contemplating yeah. uh, violent death. So, Gosh. Yeah, it was a heavy thing. I can't thing. believe it. That's full-on. Yeah, but it's the sort of thing that you, in hindsight, I guess I, you know, now it's so many years later, I, I look at it as a, I don't regret it. I, I mean, I, I wish it hadn't happened, but I don't sort of lose sleep over it. I did for a while because I had a few nightmares about it yeah. after a while. But uh, but what I do see it is it was quite a quite a key turning point for me in terms of, how I now sort of take life by the by the sort of I don't know what's the word by the horns balls. or whatever you say yeah balls. just balls yeah. yeah I sort of had a moment in the, a few moments when that happened to think well you know I was lucky to get out of that so I should make the most of what I've got and and became I mean funnily enough people would say you would um did you you know have a religious experience mm. I had quite the opposite it basically was the beginning of me becoming an you know a, a strident atheist I just realised. When you you know you're confronting the murderous, violent death, I sort of realise that it's not. There's nothing to pray to, and there's no way to nothing. Mm. Nothing's going to help you. You basically have to you know look at the world and make the most of what you've got. It's a precious time on the planet. There's no wonderful thing to look forward to afterwards, and you've got to kind of really work hard to enjoy and get the most out of what you've got here. And not be sort of thinking about what might come next. Yeah. And that was a real kind of was a moment where I perhaps had some religious belief prior after that i was like that's a load of bullshit and i now need to sort of just get real and now even then it took some years for that i think that seed was sown and then it wasn't an immediate like okay religion done but that was the real point where i went okay and then it sort of that slowly germinated and then later you know when i met my wife and we talked unpacked a lot of stuff it dawned on me like actually yeah that all of the religious stuff that i perhaps had baggage that i'd had gone it was it was you know it was so some people might say that sort of thing would get you to turn to god yeah mine was like no the quite different like it set set the stage for no nah, it's wow you gotta you gotta get on with it hmm. i was gonna say if we had another hour we'd probably have a little debate <laughs> but, <laughs> but you love your footy jack viney's a big gamer i know is it uh have you had any north melbourne boys come in here or no. Uh, no, unfortunately. I mean, one of the things I say about footy is, of course, I've been Barracuda North since I was about seven or eight and, you know, I saw the grand finals in the 90s and just, you know, live and breathe the club and love them. But I'll tell you one thing, you couldn't, in a little rant here, you couldn't have made, I don't know about the other clubs, but I can tell you, and I've written to North about it, for the last couple of years, the migration to a sort of stupid online system to get into the ground and organise your membership is so horrible mm. that it's put me off trying to get into games. Now, I know even during COVID it was horrendous because there was all these other ridiculous hurdles to just go to Etihad or whatever or yeah. Marvel Stadium. But 
the club has certainly not made it easy to you used to be able to just walk in, you go to the ground. If you're a premier membership, like I think I'm paying, I don't even know what it is, but a premier member premiership membership that's one of the more sort of expensive ones. You get your, you just get your card, walk into Marvel, scan the barcode, go to the member's zone, grab a seat, you're good. Now it's not like that. It'll, hopefully this year they're going to address that because I think heaps of people complain. So that's my little rant about I am a massive North man, but that is something that's been like a, like a knitting needle in the eye, like fan repellent. So they've got to fix that. But in terms of the club, it is hard to – I mean, it's hard to get enthusiastic. I mean, the club's been really struggling and – and I think for a lot of people, uh, it's no point crying about it now, but absolutely the jettisoning of Harvey and others at that point in what, yeah. 2016, 2017, was such a travesty that for like people who are loyalists and just seeing that, I mean, Brent Harvey probably could have put three more seasons down better than, and then. I think he actually wants to get rookie this year, John. <laughs> well, Honestly, something came out the other day. <laughs> well, you've yeah. got these, you've got these, and then, you, you know, Drew Petrie and others who all got let go and nothing replaced them that was of any, any sort of merit or quality. And then you get Ben Brown going and you go, all right, we understand these trades, but nothing came back. Robbie Tarrant, nothing yeah, back. Nothing back. And mm. then you, and, and, and you get the players like Pollack and that who've just uh, now didn't, didn't make it or whatever. And you kind of go, so you lose the entire backbone of the comp, of the of the um, club, the all the senior players, the ones who you hope were going to be like the cult heroes, the the kind of players that you build club spirit and culture around, gone, and then all these new kids that and you, half of them don't even want to be like that yeah. fellow, you know, the um, Jason Horn Francis, yeah, yeah. didn't want to yeah. be there, and obviously, you know, that happens a lot, and probably a sign that nearly any time you get number one draft pick that's not from Melbourne. You can probably already staple the uh, the, the airline ticket yeah. onto it because <laughs> yeah. they're not you know they don't want to be they sort of want to be home with mum and dad back in Adelaide or Perth, and so you kind of look at it and go, it's hard to get enthusiastic now. That of course we all at North are thinking that Clarkson and his retinue are going to just it's just a good vibe, right? Because having when you've got a club like North that isn't a premier club like Essendon and Collingwood, where they get all the press and all the attention, it's even worse than when you've got a coach that's not uh, like a beacon. You want to have a name coach at a, at a little club like North because if you just get a no-name coach, no offence to them, but if you just get, you know, the bloke who played 50 games in the thirds back in 1987 and now they're – but they've risen the ranks and they've – you know, they're an awesome coach but no one's ever heard of them. Very sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and they, and they, and they just, but it doesn't excite the members yeah. in the club and so there's a level of culture that you need to cultivate in a club mm. that's from – with the supporters and that, that – no supporter gets excited about those those back pocket fifty gamers. hundred percent, you're spot on. Yeah, you know? you're spot on. By the way, so you said you're a premium member at North. I would have assumed that just being a member at North gets you in that club. Haha. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, probably nowadays it does. But I mean, I've been a member for twenty seven years. No, I'm joking. Well, my dad actually said that. Um, he had to bribe you to leave Arden Street one day when he when he was Footscray man. Oh yeah, and, uh, yeah, yeah. North were freezing. Yeah, <laughs> and they were belting. And they, yeah, they were about hundred points up at half time, and it cost it him. Arden or Western Western Oval, maybe it was. Oh. But yes, it was those days. That was in the. He 80s. pocketed some money for, to to get out of there early. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, no. Well, John, honestly, thank you. We really appreciate this time we spent together, and thank you for having us here in this awesome setup. Um, just before we let you go, just. Tell us about what's happening in Sydney with Fortress and, oh, yeah. and yeah, what's on the horizon. Yeah, so we're currently building Fortress Sydney and the construction started uh, about a week and a half ago. I mean, the, that's our construction. The landlord works had already been done and they handed the keys for our builders to then build Fortress Sydney. We're on target to open the doors there March 31st. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's another giant venue like this. 
it's at Central Park Mall, which is on um, Broadway in uh, Chippendale, which is across the road from University of Technology Sydney in a five-minute walk from Central Station, so prime location. Perfect. You know, and then, and then on top of that, we're doing more and more tournaments and productions and online stuff. So the brand itself is growing in tandem with the venues. We're growing the and building the the whole fortress story as the home of games to do more than just have venues. We love that. You know, we're looking at other options to extend and expand the brand. Awesome. Lastly, what should be the pick on the menu if we're going to get some food tonight? What what, what should we go with? Yeah, if you're hungry, then we've got the beef battle axe, Ooh. which is a monster. <laughs> Sounds all right. Yeah. That's, that's Doss's. And, yeah, yeah, that's a biggie. And then the other I one. I mean, is- it's not Mike from uh, the band. Well, has he got some thick shape? Was it Mike or who, who was the guy? Oh, the drummer? Uh, Raymond. Raymond. It's, it's probably not Raymond style, but yeah. No, uh, the, the palmers are good too. We get a lot of, you know, that's one of the trademarks here. The chicken palmers are good. Yeah, everything's good here. Awesome. Well, thanks, John. Appreciate it. We'll put in, in the show notes your LinkedIn if anyone wants to connect. Of course, all the details to Fortress, but really appreciate you joining us. Thank you for your time. Thanks, John. All right, good. My pleasure. Thanks. wasn't that episode just awesome oh mate i got so much out of it i'm sure you did too and of course thank you to everyone who listened guys if you haven't already go and subscribe to the podcast over on apple Podcasts and spotify for sure and please leave us a five-star review on apple it goes such a long way to helping the show and of course you have your chance to get a shout out don't forget to go and follow us over on instagram as well what's the instagram d it's at dawson d underscore d-o-s-a-n-d-d underscore see you next week (laughs) (laughs) we'll see you in the next episode